Father, do we ask that you would plant your words into our lives today and make us more like Jesus because we've been here. We pray in his name. Amen. So there's this guy, and he was on an airplane, and he's sitting next to this woman, and he is trying to come up you know, with a conversation with her, but she wants to take a nap. He says, hey, you want to play a game? She's not interested, but he's insistent. And so he says, here's the game. The game is I ask you a question, and if you can't answer my question, you give me $5. And then you ask me a question. If I can't answer your question, I'll give you $500. And so finally, she's convinced that he's going to keep blabbering, so I might as well play the game. So he goes ahead and asks the first question. He says to the woman, what is the distance exactly between earth and the moon well the woman she doesn't even hesitate she just reaches in her billfold takes out five dollars and gives it to her then he says now now you ask me a question and she said okay what goes up the hill with three legs and comes down with four legs well he couldn't think what that was so he gets online he gets on the internet he's googling he's, he's texting friends after an hour he just gives up and says he says you know I don't, I don't know, here's, here's $500. Well, about that time, the plane is landing and she's getting her stuff together. And he says, so what's the answer? She reaches in her wallet and gives him $5. <laughs> Some people are smart when it comes to money. Some people aren't. But money really is a spiritual issue, and we're going to see that today as we continue our study. Now, we've been doing this study on the seven churches out of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And what we noticed is that these churches are under spiritual attack. In fact, all churches throughout history are under spiritual attack. And what the, what the attack of the enemy is trying to do, and the devil and his demons, their goal is to bring about our spiritual defection. That is their goal in all spiritual warfare. Their ultimate goal is to undermine our loyalty to Jesus Christ. And the devil and his minions, they use different tactics and different strategies to try to bring that about. In fact, we are seeing some of these strategies exposed as we study the seven churches in the book of Revelation because we're seeing the devil bring his strategies against each of these churches, trying to get them to walk away from Christ. But Jesus is also telling these churches how to overcome that specific strategy. And he talks about being overcomers. He's talking about overcoming the devil's attempts to undermine your loyalty to Jesus Christ. And so, so far we've seen some of his strategies and we've also learned how to overcome those specific strategies. The first strategy that we saw was when we studied the church in Ephesus, we saw that the devil tries to attack our personal devotional life with the Lord. He tries to get us to leave our first love. He tries to get us to stop communing with Christ as a priority because the devil knows that all of our ministry flows out of that communion with Christ. So the devil tries to stop us from having that communion. The second strategy that we notice from the devil uses against the church is the strategy of persecution, fear and intimidation. He tries to get us to back away from following Jesus because it's going to cost us too much to do that. It's going to cost us loss. It's going to cost us suffering. It may even cost us our lives. 
And so that's the strategy the devil used against the church in Smyrna and a strategy he oftentimes uses today around the world. The third strategy that the enemy uses against the church is a strategy of compromise. If he can't stop the church from the outside, bringing outside pressure, he tries to stop the church from the inside to get it spiritually, to spiritually compromise and collapse. We saw that the way the devil uses this strategy of trying to get the church to compromise is primarily in two areas, and that is idolatry and sexual immorality. And that's what he tried with the church in Pergamum. The fourth strategy the enemy uses against the church is the strategy of weariness, loss of heart, disappointment. He tries to just wear down the church where we're discouraged and we despair and we give up and we quit. We throw in the towel and we just stop living for the Lord. We start living for ourselves. And that's the strategy he tried to use against the church of Thyatira. Today, we want to look at the fifth strategy that the devil and his demons used against the church. And that strategy we're going to see in just a moment is trying to get the church to so love the world and the things of the world that the love of the Father is no longer in them. Now, if you remember 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, the Word of God tells us this, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So the devil knows this truth, and so he tries to get the church to fall in love with the world, tries to get Christians to fall in love with the things of the world, because he knows, the devil knows, that will lead to spiritual complacency. And spiritual complacency leads to spiritual death. And this is the tactic that the devil is going to is used against the church in Sardis and also uses against churches today. So we're going to study the, exactly what Jesus says, the ascended, glorified Jesus Christ says to the church in Sardis and says to the churches, including us. But before we do that, remember a good thing to do in Bible study is to Really take time to do good observation before you do interpretation and application. So we, would, we should make sure that we do a little background study in the city of Sardis before we really expect to understand what he's saying to the believers that lived in that city. Now, what you would discover as you study the city of Sardis by looking in a Bible dictionary, Googling a Bible dictionary, and uh, reading about Sardis, is you would learn that it also is located in the country of Turkey that we know of today, or Asia Minor back then. Minor back then. And it, was, uh, it sat high, and this is important, this city sat high on a mountain, about 1,500 feet above the valley floor. Its location, the city's location, was nearly invincible. The mountain which... Sardis was built on, had smooth and nearly perpendicular, very steep sides on three sides. And on the fourth side, only from the south could the city be approached via a very steep and difficult path. It, it, it's seemingly indestructible 
location caused the inhabitants of Sardis to become overconfident. And that complacency eventually led to the city's downfall actually twice. It was through carelessness that the city of Sardis was captured twice. Sardis was sacked twice because they left those very steep, smooth accesses on three sides completely unguarded, permitting climbers to ascend unobserved. In fact, it was said that even a child could have defended this city from that kind of attack, but they didn't even have one person watching those three smooth, what they thought was inaccessible sides of the city. And so Sardis was sacked twice and it never regained his independence and became and came under Roman rule in 133 BC. That's important for us to know this. We'll see in a moment. The second thing that's important for us to know about the city of Sardis is that there were some hot springs that were very near the city that were celebrated as a spot in which the gods manifested their supposed power to give life to the dead. That was its reputation in the area of Sardis. A third important fact we should know about Sardis is that it was known for the prosperous garment industry that it had. And this garment industry actually made the city very wealthy. We're talking about a very wealthy city. And a fourth thing you should know about the city of Sardis is that they enjoyed their wealth. They lived very luxurious and very loose lifestyles. So with that background, let's go ahead and begin to read the passage. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. So the church in Sardis is pronounced dead by Jesus. Now, this would have spoken really a lot to these people whose city had a reputation for bringing life to the dead. The church in Sardis was like a museum with stuffed animals that are exhibited in their natural habitat. And everything appears to be normal, but nothing is alive. The church in Sardis is basically going through the motions. Externally, they looked alive. But internally, they were spiritually dead. And the spiritual decay in the church of Sardis would not have been obvious to any onlooker as they observed them outwardly. In fact, they were still known for some good works, as Jesus points out. They had a name for being alive and had an outstanding reputation for their life and their vitality as a church. But in the sight of God, they were spiritually dead. Now, right away, we got to stop and just, I mean, remember, this is a message to the churches, we got to ask ourselves, does any of that hit a note with any of us? Do any of us feel like we're just kind of going through the motions? But on the inside, we're spiritually dead. It's easy to do that. It's easy to look fine on the outside. But on the inside, 
know that there's not any life. Now, if that's you, and I'm not asking for you show of hands or anything like that, but if that's you, then what, what you need is revival. And what the church of Sardis needed was revival. It needed to be brought back to life, to spiritual life. Revelation 3, 2, here's what Jesus says to them. So wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. And they'll walk with me in white for they are worthy. So Jesus talks about, he uses the word soiled, soiled their garments. Now again, many of the believers, he said, had soiled their garments. This would have spoken volumes uh, to the church in Sardis who lived in the city that was known for their garments their garment industry. And of course, Jesus is now taking that truth, but he's speaking spiritually here. Now we know that from history that the people of Sardis were known for their luxurious lifestyles. And that is how, actually that tells us a little bit about how the church in Sardis died and became spiritually complacent. It happened because they began to give in to the love of the world and the things of the world. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12? Let's just read this. I mean, Matthew uh, 13, verse 22, it says, And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So Jesus says one of the things we've got to watch out for is the deceitfulness of wealth because it can choke out the word and we can become unfruitful. There is a spiritual complacency that comes when we give in to the deceitfulness of wealth that brings about this spiritual death, this unfruitfulness. But it's interesting that Jesus talks about the deceitfulness of wealth. What does that mean? That means that money can be deceitful. Well, how can money be deceitful? The way money is deceitful is that money promises something that it does not deliver. It's a liar. Money's a liar. It's a deceitful thing. It promises to make you happy if you just had more of it, but then you get more and it didn't work. It's a liar. It's deceitful. One of the most interesting shows I think I've ever seen was a show they did on the winners of the lottery. They took There's like five different winners of the lottery of over $5 million, each one of them. And they, did, they looked at their lives five years later. And they interviewed them five years after these five had won over $5 million each. And every one of them on this show pointed out that they were, that they were much less happy five years later after winning the lottery than before they won it. And even though we hear that, we always still like to win the lottery. Money's deceitful. It's a liar. It promises 
but doesn't deliver on its promise. It leads to a barrenness, a spiritual complacency when we love it, when we, when we believe it's lies, and bring, can bring about spiritual death. So the love of money is the belief that more is always better. If I just had more of it, it would be better. That's the lie of the deceitfulness of money. The solution to that is to be content with what you have. It's not to believe more is better, but the solution is to be content with what you have. So let me just ask you a question. If you, if, uh, you had a billion dollars, would you be content with that? I think a lot of us would say, yeah, I think I'd be content with a billion dollars. Why? Break that down. Why would that make you content? I think that there would be probably four reasons people would cite. One is well, future security. I'd be secure for the future. A future enjoyment, I'd be able to enjoy the future more. A peace by having relief lifted off of me from present pressures. And fourth, the ability to be a blessing to other people. A billion dollars could sure help in those areas. Now, what I'd ask you is this. What is better than a billion dollars? Some of you would say two billion. Let's talk about future security. Can the Lord provide for your future security better than money? What about future enjoyment? Can the Lord provide for your future enjoyment better than money? What about peace by having relief from present pressures? Can the Lord give you relief from present pressures better than money? How about the ability to be a blessing to others? Can the Lord enable you to be a blessing to others better than money? That is why Hebrews chapter 13, 5 and 6 says this. Let's read it. Hebrews 13, 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I'll not be afraid. What will man do to me? See, the key to contentment is being content with what you have. And what do you have? As a Christian, you have the Lord. He will be with you. He won't leave you or forsake you. And so when you need these things, he will still be there. And he will help you. Do you believe that? Many years ago, Tracy and I were looking for an opportunity to get away and take a break. And we really didn't have money to afford to do that. And I just got done studying how Jesus identified himself as the morning star in the book of Revelation. He is the bright and morning star. And, and so we're studying that, and, I, and we're just talking about how, you know, we just know the Lord's enough for us. The Lord will provide whatever we need. He always has. He always will. And right after that, we, we found out about a guy in Colorado that wanted pastors to be able to come to these, he has these houses in the mountains, beautiful homes tucked away in the mountains, and he wanted pastors to build, and their wives to be able to come and stay there for free. So I called and checked on it, and sure enough, that was the deal. And we went up there, and it was the most beautiful place in the mountains, right just outside of Durango, Colorado. And it had a sign with the name of the building, and it, the name of the building was, guess, the Morning Star. And I saw that. I just got choked up. Because I know he's enough for us. And when he is enough for us, he makes sure we have what we need. We can trust him. He's our helper. He'll be there when we need him. 
So how do you keep from falling for this demonic scheme of love of money that leads to spiritual complacency? How do you keep from falling from that? Well, the way you do that is being content with what you have. And what you have is the Lord in your life. And he will help you. He'll make sure you have what you need. You have to trust him. But what if you've already given in to the love of money and you already are complacent here? Right now, you in all honesty, you say, I'm, I'm complacent right now in my spiritual life. I need revival right now. So what should you do to get it? Well, Jesus tells us. Let's, let's read it again. Revelation 3, 2 and 3. He says, wake up, strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have found, I'm sorry, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. So Christ actually lays out a path for revival here in these two verses. And there's actually four simple steps to revival, to life from the dead, spiritually. Step number one, wake up. Wake up. In other words, take note of your spiritual state. Wake up out of your spiritual slumber. And again, this admonition was particularly relevant to Sardis, remember? This is a city that thought that, that they could not be attacked from those three sides, that they, it was impregnable. This Acropolis. And, and in fact, they were attacked by stealth twice, sacked twice, because they weren't vigilant. They weren't alert. They weren't awake, paying attention. They weren't watchful. So Jesus says, wake up. Pay attention to your state right now. Wake up, whatever that is. Wake up. Pay attention to it. It's interesting. The Bible only tells us to flee three things. I don't know if you know what those three things are. The Bible tells us to flee three things. And usually if I ask a group, someone will say the devil. The Bible never tells you to flee from the devil. He says, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. These three things that the Bible says to flee from are lust, sexual morality, or love of money, or idolatry. Those three things. Now, why? Why flee those three things? Because if we don't flee them, we tend to rationalize them. The obvious one would be sexual immorality. If you don't flee it, it's easy to rationalize it. I had, a, I had a man many years ago that was in a small group I was leading, and we held each other accountable. And he called me from a bar, and he said, I'm in a bar, and he's a married man. He said, I'm in a bar, and I just saw my old girlfriend. And I'm just calling you to be held accountable. I said, okay, hang up the phone and leave. He said, I'll, I'll be all right. I'll be all right. I said, hang up the phone and leave. No, I'm, I'm going to be okay. I'll, I'll see you tomorrow, Gary. I did see him the next day as he stood at my front door in tears because he just committed adultery. And that was the beginning and the end of his marriage. You don't rationalize these things. You flee them. Well, the same is true for the love of money. The love of money is something to flee. Why? Because if not, if we don't flee it, we'll rationalize it and we'll justify why it's okay that we have that pursuit in our lives. So wake up, Jesus said. Wake up. Be watchful. Pay attention to what's going on in your heart. Pay attention to it. Number two, he says, strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. So there's some things that are still intact spiritually. Maybe it's not a fan of, you know, flame. It's a little smoldering wick. But, but Jesus is saying you've got to fan that flame. You've got to strengthen the things that remain. Yeah, you're not worshiping like you used to, but, but you're still doing a little bit. But you need to strengthen that worship. You're not... You know, you're not praying like, you know, you could or you should or you did before. 
but you still pray a little bit, but strengthen that prayer life. You're not fellowshipping and been supportive of brothers and sisters in Christ. So strengthen that. Strengthen the things that remain. Fan the flame. Stop the downward slide. You're sliding downward. Stop it. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain. Don't let things get worse. Third step, remember what you received and heard and keep it. Now, the key thing here that we have received and heard is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Jesus says, keep it, keep it. What's the point here? I believe the point here is, remember, the gospel is this good news that's to be shared. I think the point is get back on mission. You're ambassadors of Christ. You live in this, you know, your citizenship is in heaven. You're, you're on a mission right here. Get back on mission. Part of complacency is, the evidence of complacency is we're not on mission anymore. And so get back on mission. You know, it's, it's, you're running after money when we ought to be in a life-saving mission is like trying to, you know, upgrade your room on the Titanic as a ship is sinking. That makes no sense. And fourth, Jesus says, repent. Confess, turn away from your sin, admit to God that your focus, your priorities are out of whack. Confess it and then do the 180. Repent, turn around, change. So there are some of you, in all honesty, say, I need to repent today. And you know you do. Those of you that need to repent today, you know you do right now. The Spirit of God is making it clear to you. You know you've complacent. You know you need revival. You know you need to repent. You've become you know, the thorny soil. You're choking out the word. You're not seeing fruit in your life. You need to repent from complacency, from spiritual deadness. Now, what if you should repent and you don't? Well, Jesus says, verse 3 of Revelation 3, he says this, so remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. He's not talking about the second coming here. He's talking specifically to those who are not waking up spiritually. He's talking about coming to them unexpectedly, like a thief, in some form of discipline or chastening. See, Christ is serious about the condition of his church, and he will, he, he will not tolerate a dead, complacent, apathetic church. So he comes in, in, to intervene in some way, to stop the slide. I think basically he's saying, wake up or I'll come wake you up. Verse 4, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I'll confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christ promises never to erase the overcomer's name from the list of those whose names are in the book of life. Now, the book of life here is being used as a metaphor for the living here. Those who overcome, who are true believers, will continue living forever. They will have eternal life. And Christ will confess every overcomer's name before God the Father, before his angels, affirm that we belong to him. By the way, again, remember the evidence that you are a true believer in Christ is that you do, in fact, overcome. You do overcome the enemy's attempts to undermine your loyalty to Christ. So here's the question. So what happened 
to Sardis? Did they heed the warning? Did revival come to the church in Sardis? We know from history that the church in Sardis was strong the next century. So revival, so they did repent and revival did come. They repented from their complacency, their love of money. They got back on mission. They fanned the flame of devotion to Christ and revival came. Revival comes to those who truly repent. The same is true today. Our society is saturated with love of money. Much of the church in America is complacent, and we must resist this. We must wake up, not be part of this, repent from this. Now, the key to resisting love of money is be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. And what you have is the Lord in your life, and he'll help you when you need it. But if complacency already has you, the key is repentance. Wake up, get back to walk in with Jesus, get back on mission. That's what we're here for. So let's all stand. I want to ask, Aaron, if you come up here, let's all stand as we close. Just for some time of, of asking just the Lord to show any of us. If you need repentance from any complacency in your spiritual life, or you just say, I just need revival. During this song, we're just going to ask the Lord to do that today. And uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to, uh, Aaron's going to lead us in this song, just simply just cry, Lord, we need you. We need you. So, Father, right now, Lord, I ask you to search our hearts and show any of us that we've just become complacent. We've become complacent. Perhaps it's, we've been sucked into to worldliness. It's taken our edge off. or off mission. There's just a spiritual deadness in us. We need revival. We need you to touch us. We're asking you to do that today, Lord. So here we are, Lord. We're gathered here as your people, and we humble ourselves and confess we need you to pour out the Spirit of God fresh today. We need you to fan the flame. We're asking you, Lord. We're asking you to help us even in the very thing we need to do about waking up and repenting today. Help us do this in Jesus' name. So if you want to be prayed for for that, for any complacency or need for revival, come on down to a song, song, and we're going to close in prayer in just a moment.
close in prayer. Would some of you come up, Miss Lee Hens, and the brothers and sisters down here? Let's we'll close in prayer. Slip out real quick and come on up. Father, we thank you that how quick you are to forgive. We thank you, Lord, how repentant hearts capture your attention so quickly. Lord, we thank you for forgiveness today. And Lord, we do pray for you. Would you pour out your spirit upon these that have come up front, on all of us in this room, on those online, would you pour out your spirit upon us, Lord? we'd be alive from your perspective. We'd be spiritually vibrant because, Lord, we love you, Jesus, and we're on mission for you. So would you fan the flame in all of us today in the name of Jesus?